Inside the TARDIS, Rory and the Doctor were playing chess. Rory had set the game up on a folding table beside one of the softly glowing walls of the console room and was hunched on a stool studying the board intently. The Doctor, meanwhile, was striding around the central console on the level above, humming to himself, manipulating controls seemingly at random. Despite the Doctor's lack of attention, he had hemmed Rory's remaining pieces into one corner of the board in only nine moves. Why don't you jump over his tower with your little horsey thing? said a voice behind him, breaking his concentration. Rory turned irritably. His wife, Amy, hair glowing like a copper waterfall, was leaning over his shoulder. I thought you were having a bath, he said. I was. I have. She nodded at the board. So, why don't you? It's not a horsey. It's a knight, he said through gritted teeth. Where's his sword? Amy asked. He hasn't got a sword. Rubbish sort of night, then, she sniffed. Rory was about to reply, when on the walkway above them, the doctor suddenly doubled over with a howl of agony. Doctor! Amy shouted, hurrying to intercept him as he staggered down the steps on the far side of the console. Jumping to his feet, Rory followed her. The sight that greeted them was so alarming that Amy halted abruptly, causing Rory to cannon into her. The doctor was halfway down the steps, his body encased in a jittery nimbus of blue-black sparks, which fizzed and snapped like angry mosquitoes. His eyelids were fluttering, and he was swaying from side to side. Doctor! What's happening? Amy cried, moving towards him. Keep back! he shouted, his voice full of static like a bad radio signal. Is there anything we can do? asked Rory, grabbing Amy by the shoulders. The doctor clenched his teeth. It'll pass in a minute. Probably. But what is it? wailed Amy. Temporal disruption. Unstable Artron energy. And with that, his eyes rolled into his head, and he tumbled down the steps. It wasn't a long fall, but Amy and Rory winced as the doctor's gangly frame landed at their feet with a clanging thud. The black sparks crackled around his body for a few seconds longer before fading away. You can let go of me now, Amy said tersely to Rory. Well, we, we, we still don't know whether it's safe to... Ow! Amy had stamped on Rory's foot, causing his hands to spring apart. Released from her husband's hold, Amy dropped to one knee and shook the doctor's arm. Hey, wake up! The doctor groaned and suddenly sat bolt upright, almost banging heads with Amy. No! he shouted, looking around in alarm. He jumped to his feet. No, 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 no! He clattered up the steps and began to tear around the console, twisting dials and slapping buttons. Amy leapt after him, and Rory brought up the rear, rueful as ever that the legs of his travelling companion seemed at least twice as long as his own. At first, Amy tried to catch the Doctor by chasing him round the console, but then she simply waited for him to circle the console for the fourth time, whereupon she stepped forward and wrapped her arms around him. What are you doing? he exclaimed indignantly. Not letting you go until you give us some answers, she said. We haven't got time for this, the doctor said, struggling. Not letting you go, she repeated. The doctor sighed. Rory, control your wife. Rory blinked in astonishment. Are you serious? Not really the doctor sighed, then launched into a rapid explanation. All right, keeping it simple. 
The TARDIS hoovered up a big, nasty splurge of time disruption, which she zapped into my head. The splurge gave me a vision of the future. A very bad vision. How bad? Rory asked. What did you see? The doctor fixed him with a piercing stare. Grimly, he said, The end of everything. Doctor Who, Dark Star Academy by Mark Morris. Read by Alexander Armstrong. arrived the doctor announced where asked amy source of the time disruption and where's that exactly the doctor tapped the tardis scanner not sure the old girl's feeling a bit peaky best just to go outside rory looked nervous isn't that dangerous probably said the doctor cheerfully and he opened the door They stepped out into one of a row of narrow wooden stalls inside a gloomy, dilapidated stable building. The floor was strewn with dry straw which crackled beneath their feet, and thick spiderwebs drooped from every corner. Well, this is nice, said Rory uncertainly. Amy wrinkled her nose. If you like the smell of manure. The doctor had whipped his sonic screwdriver from his pocket and was pirouetting as he swept it around. Examining the readings, he said, You know what's interesting about this stable? What? asked Rory dutifully. There have never been any horses in here. Amy frowned. But there's old tack hanging on the walls. Plus, did I mention the smell of manure? Told you it was interesting, replied the doctor. Is this something to do with that time tsunami you dreamt about? Rory asked. A vision, not a dream, corrected the doctor. And I don't know. Best to keep an open mind. He pushed open the chest-high door of the stall and strode towards the main exit. After the gloom of the stables, the sunlight that hit them when they stepped outside made them shield their eyes. Ahead stretched a vast expanse of emerald green grass, divided into half a dozen rugby and cricket pitches, which were bordered on all sides by woodland. Stepping from the shadow of the stable building, the time travellers found themselves on the edge of a gravel forecourt, dominated by an elaborate stone fountain. Water spouted in graceful arcs from the mouths of carved stone fish. Beyond the fountain, to their immediate right, stood a huge and impressive stately home, bathed in glorious sunshine that beamed down from a cloudless blue sky. Look, said the doctor gleefully, plucking something from the weeds growing around the abandoned stable. A cricket ball. I like cricket. Definitely Earth, then, said Amy. Where else in the universe would they play such a stupid game? As the doctor indignantly pocketed the ball, Rory nodded towards the main door of the house. Well, these guys look human enough. 
Six black-blazered schoolboys had appeared and were descending the wide stone steps. Human, but serious, added Rory, as the boys moved purposefully across the forecourt towards them. Amy waved a dismissive hand. Ah, they're just kids. The doctor looked at the emblem of a black star on a red background, which decorated the boys' lapels and the breast pockets of their blazers. They're not kids, he said. They're prefects, so don't offend them or frighten them. Amy looked astonished. Me? The schoolboys halted in front of them. They were all around sixteen, stern-faced and tousle-haired. The doctor raised a hand and grinned. Hello, I'm the doctor, and these are my friends, the Pons. The boys didn't grin back. Instead, the one directly facing the doctor, his hair sun-bleached and his eyes as blue as the sky, reached into his blazer and produced a Webley revolver, which he pointed at the doctor's chest. The doctor's grin vanished. That's not very friendly. The boy stared back at him. His blue eyes didn't flicker. Come with us, he said. Dozens of curious schoolboys goggled at the time travellers as they were frog-marched along the echoing corridors of the stately home and up several flights of stairs. The doctor grinned and waved like a visiting dignitary. What time is this? Amy whispered. Judging by the smell of boiled cabbage, I'd say nearly lunchtime, replied the doctor. No, you idiot. I mean, what year? About 1950, ventured Rory. Amy raised a sceptical eyebrow. Since when did you become an expert? He shrugged. I'm just going by the baggy shorts and woolly grey socks. What do you reckon, doctor? Before the doctor could reply, they were ordered to halt outside a polished mahogany door. A plaque with gold lettering bore the legend, Headmaster D.I. Kenyon. The blonde prefect gave three sharp raps. Come, called a voice. They were ushered into a book-lined study. A globe of the world stood on a table between two long windows offering a panoramic view of the grounds. A stuffed owl peered beadily out from beneath a bell jar on a nearby shelf. In a leather armchair behind an expansive wooden desk, sat a bald man in a teacher's gown. He wore silver-framed spectacles, and his mouth was set in a terse line. "'The intruders, sir,' said the prefect. "'Thank you, Perkins,' said the headmaster. He fixed the travellers with a piercing stare. "'Well, what have you to say for yourselves?' The doctor stepped forward, drawing circles in the air with his fingers. First. We're not intruders. Second, why do your prefects carry guns? Third, have you noticed anything weird recently? Time jumps, clocks moving backwards, that kind of thing. And fourth, do you do jam roly-poly here? I love jam roly-poly. The headmaster looked outraged. How dare you, sir? I'm the one asking the questions. Sorry, said the doctor, not sounding sorry at all. I didn't know there were rules. You should have said right at the beginning there were rules. Besides, you asked me what I had to say for myself, so I said it. Red-faced, the headmaster spluttered. Just who the devil are you? The doctor reached into his jacket pocket, then froze as six Webley revolvers were trained on him. Quietly, he said, I don't like guns. Nasty, bangy things that hurt people. 
He looked at the headmaster with such restrained fury that Kenyon flinched. So would you mind calling off your dogs while I show you my credentials? Kenyon nodded tersely and the boys lowered their arms. Thank you, said the doctor, producing the wallet containing his psychic paper and opening it with a flourish. Kenyon's eyes widened. Your school inspectors? The doctor winked at Amy. Obviously. And if you read the small print, you'll see that you're obligated to truthfully answer any questions that we may ask. And allow us to snoop wherever we like, added Amy. Just so, said the doctor, hastily snapping the wallet shut. Which brings me back to my earlier question. Why do your prefects carry guns? Kenyon harumphed. I would have thought that was obvious. Would you? Enlighten me. Sighing, the headmaster said, As I'm sure you're aware, uh, Doctor, security is of paramount importance here at the Academy. We are responsible not only for the education of the sons and heirs of some of the most powerful and influential individuals in the Empire, but also for their safety and welfare. It's a responsibility that we take very seriously. Very seriously indeed. Quite right, too, said the Doctor. Why only sons and heirs? Amy interrupted. Why not daughters? The doctor flashed Amy a look and leant forward over Kenyon's desk, tapping the side of his nose. Trainee. First job. Not as bright as we'd hoped, but you got to take the rough with the smooth. Before Amy could protest, he raised a finger. Hush, Pond. Then he smiled at Kenyon. Now, where would you like us to... Ah! Doubling over as though he'd been shot, he slumped across the headmaster's desk. Doctor! Amy and Rory shouted, rushing forward as he slid to the floor. There were no black sparks around his body this time, but his limbs were twitching and his eyes were moving rapidly behind his closed lids. The prefects watched him, unmoved, but Kenyon leapt from his seat. Is he all right? He's fine, Rory said. It's just a... Cheese! blurted Amy. Rory gaped at her. He's got a cheese allergy, Amy babbled. There must have been some in that omelette thing. She knew it sounded lame, but at that moment the doctor groaned. Oh, oh, look, she said, relieved. He's coming round. The doctor's eyes flickered open, and he regarded his companions sleepily. Hello, he murmured. What are you doing up there? Then, as before, he suddenly sat bolt upright. Fixing the astonished Kenyon with a fierce stare, he said, Sorry about that. Little nap. Feel better now. Right then, let's get started. There's not a moment to lose. Two minutes later, the doctor was striding along the school corridors, Amy and Rory hurrying to keep up. So what exactly are we looking for? Amy asked. Not sure, said the doctor. I'll know when I see it. Thanks, said Rory. That's really useful. The doctor flapped his hands in agitation. You've been around me long enough to know how this works. Look for anything unusual, scary, out of place. Meet me in the entrance hall in an hour. I think we're being dismissed, Rory said. I think we are, Amy agreed. Before the doctor could move away, she poked him in the shoulder. But what about you with your fainting fits? Will you be okay? He shrugged looking distracted. Well, I usually am. This is really serious, isn't it? She said quietly. He flashed a weary smile, though his gaze was impenetrable. When is it not? 
Amy decided the best strategy was for her and Rory to split up. Rory issued a token protest, but couldn't disagree that it made more sense to look in three places at once rather than two. Amy suggested that he explore the east wing while she took a look around the grounds. Behind the school, she discovered an orchard, a set of formal gardens, and several greenhouses. She plucked an apple from a tree and munched it while she walked. The roses were in bloom, and the scent of lavender wafted over her. In such idyllic surroundings, it was hard to believe they were faced with a threat which could devastate the universe. Passing through a stone arch at the rear of the garden, Amy was confronted by an acre of meadow, bordered on the far side by woodland. Sighing, she decided to walk to the trees and back. She set off, the grass swishing around her ankles, buttercups nodding their heads. Finishing her apple, she tossed the core ahead of her, and then halted. In astonishment, the core had arced through the air, and then, with a faint crackle of energy, had changed direction, as though bouncing off an invisible wall. Moving forward, she stretched out a hand, and after a few seconds, encountered a solid but unseen barrier. There was a further crackle, and a mild electric shock passed through her fingers. Snatching her hand back, she half expected to see a shimmer in the air. Or light gleaming on a transparent reflective surface, but there was nothing. She looked left, and right, wondering how far the barrier extended. Look for anything unusual, she murmured, echoing the doctor's words. She drew a tick mark in the air with her finger. Mission accomplished. The doctor strode through the school, taking readings on his sonic screwdriver. He had already disrupted several lessons that the boys hadn't seemed to mind. His bumbling antics as he tripped over bags and banged into desks while sweeping his funny little torch around was a welcome diversion from Latin verbs and boring historical battles. Now he was walking along a corridor on the fourth floor when he came to an abrupt halt. According to the sonic, there were strange energy readings pulsing from the blank wall to his left. Adjusting the settings. He touched the wall with the glowing tip of the sonic, and watched as a shape began to form beneath it. It was a metallic bulkhead door, with yellow words embossed over an electronic locking panel: "Authorized personnel only." "That'll be me then," the doctor said. Tinkering with the settings again, he gave the lock a blast. An illuminated disc above the panel changed from red to green, and the door rolled open with a hiss. The doctor stepped into a functional metal corridor, the dim lighting brightening as he walked forward. The corridor ran for 200 meters before opening into a vast dark space. On the opposite wall was a pair of massive metal doors with a central seam. The doctor approached it, his footsteps clanging on the metal floor. He came to a halt in front of a porthole inset into one of the doors, which was concealed by a metal shutter. A quick sweep of the sonic screwdriver over a nearby control panel caused the shutter to glide smoothly open. Leaning forward, the doctor saw that beyond the window were not the fields and woodland which surrounded the school, but the cold, airless vastness of space. The doctor nodded to himself. It was just as he had suspected. Looking around, he saw that the walls of the vast room he was in were made of molded metal. To which were clamped hand tools and larger pieces of machinery. He recognized the room as a docking bay, 
and the equipment is that used to service and repair 28th century Earth Empire space vehicles. It was here, he knew, where visiting shuttles would arrive and disembark. The double doors, which opened into space, were emblazoned with a star symbol, identical to the one on the badge of each boy's school blazer. Beneath the symbol, a scroll bore the words, Semper Primoris, always first. Above the symbol was the number four, which suggested that this was not the only docking bay. The doctor suspected that in one of the others he would find the source of the time disruption. He knew he was close. He knew it not only by the readings on his sonic screwdriver, but also because he could feel it in his hearts, in his bones, in his very essence. It was part of what made him a Time Lord. Between banks of equipment on the right-hand wall was a door, identical to the one in the school corridor. Moving towards it, he became more acutely aware of the debilitating effects of distorting time energy with each step. He knew that whatever was beyond that door would be appallingly dangerous, and yet he couldn't simply walk away. He was the only person here who could possibly deal with it. Fighting against the terrible future visions that were threatening to overwhelm him, visions of death and destruction on an unprecedented scale, he unlocked the door with his sonic and stepped inside. Instantly he recoiled, throwing an arm up to shield his face, his knees buckling as his body was buffeted by corrupted waves of time energy. It swept through him like nausea, the visions becoming more acute, more vivid. Struggling to stay conscious, he homed in on the heart of the disruption, a pulsating dome about the size of a small house. It was hovering in the center of the cargo bay, shot through with iridescent colors like a soap bubble. With a massive effort, the doctor pointed his sonic screwdriver at the dome and turned it on. Nothing happened. The dome neither reduced its energy output nor opened to allow him access. Painstakingly, he altered the settings and tried again. Still nothing. Knowing that he was on the verge of losing consciousness and that further exposure to the unstable levels of Artron energy would prove lethal, he used the last of his strength to crawl away. He was able to make it back into Cargo Bay 4 and managed to close the door behind him just before everything went black. Rory had never been much good at lying and had been forced to do it twice already to members of staff who'd accosted him in the corridor, demanding to know what he was up to. The disbelief on their faces when he had mumbled that he was a school inspector had made him want to throw up his hands and admit the truth. But he had stuck doggedly to his story and so far had managed to get away with it. Hoping that the doctor and Amy were having better luck, he heard a commotion in the corridor ahead. Behind a set of fire doors came the approaching clatter of footsteps accompanied by raised voices. Get him! Rory heard one boy shout distantly. Come here, you little creep! bellowed another. Rory was wondering whether to investigate when one of the fire doors thumped open and a boy appeared. Chubby, bespectacled and red-faced, the boy was clearly terrified. Rory glanced through the glass-panelled door of a nearby classroom and saw it was empty. In here, he said. The boy gaped at him, so astonished that he stumbled to a halt. I wouldn't leave it too long if I were you, Rory advised as the sounds of pursuit drew closer. Without another word, the boy darted into the classroom, 
Rory shut the door. Seconds later, both fire doors flew open, and four boys, each a head taller than their quarry, burst through. Though he felt nervous, Rory tried to imitate Mr. Moxon, his fearsome geography teacher from secondary school. Do you usually stampede through the corridors like a herd of elephants? He was aware that in his check shirt, combat pants, and trainers, he didn't look like an authority figure, and so was gratified when the boys halted, eyeing him cautiously. Sorry, sir. One of them said, "We were just looking for a, a friend of ours," said another. "Small boy, glasses," Rory asked. "Yes, sir." Rory pointed off down the corridor. "He went that way. Doubt you'll catch him, though. Looked like he was training for the Olympics." The boys thanked him and hurried off in the direction that Rory had indicated. When they were out of sight, he opened the classroom door. "It's all right," he said. "They've gone." The boy emerged from behind the teacher's desk like a mole from its tunnel. "Have they really?" he asked, as if unable to understand why anyone would help him. Rory double-checked. "Yep." The boy slumped, the tension leaving his body. "What's your name?" Rory asked. "Milton Hope Ballantine," the boy said grandly. "Hello, Milton. I'm Rory. So why were those boys after you?" Hope Ballantine looked sulky, shifty even. They don't like me. And um, why not? Rory asked. The boy looked up, magnified by his spectacles. His eyes looked huge. Because, I'm a genius, he said. Amy couldn't find the doctor. She'd been misdirected four times, and once had ended up in the gym where boys in vests and shorts were doing circuit training. She was halfway up a flight of stairs when she heard a voice on the floor above talking to somebody else. "Just stick with me," the voice said as footsteps descended towards her. "I'll protect you." "He will as well," she called up. "He's not as weedy as he looks." There was a surprised silence. Then Rory said uncertainly, "Amy, is that you?" She rolled her eyes. "Who else would it be, you muppet?" The footsteps quickened, and suddenly there he was. As they hugged, another figure sidled into view. "Hello," said Amy over Rory's shoulder. Into his ear she murmured, "Who's the little guy?" The chubby boy looked petulant. "I'm not a little guy. I'm Milton Hope Ballantine. I saved Milton from some bullies." Explained Rory. Really, Amy smiled and kissed him on the cheek. My hero. Suddenly, the peace of the school was shattered by screaming from up above them. Beneath the panicked yells of children were the raw, terrified howls of an adult. Without hesitation, Amy and Rory bounded up the stairs, bypassing Milton, who stood rooted to the spot for a moment before reluctantly following them. This way, Amy shouted. Bursting through a set of fire doors and racing along a corridor hung with dour-looking portraits, at the far end a classroom door flew open and dozens of panic-stricken boys came tumbling out. Amy and Rory fought their way through them, Rory in the lead. Oh my! He breathed, skidding to a halt in the open doorway. Lying next to an open stationery cupboard. A teacher was squirming and kicking as a writhing mass of cat-sized creatures swarmed over him. Like a cross between piranhas and tarantulas, they had spiny, armored shells, 
bulbous eyes, wide jaws filled with jagged teeth, and far too many legs. Lobster red in colour, each bore a black star-shaped symbol on their back, which, despite their frenzied attack on the teacher, struck Rory as being identical to the one on the school badge. What's happening? came Milton's querulous voice from the corridor. I want to see. You really don't, Amy muttered, sickened. The teacher had stopped screaming now and was kicking only feebly. As if sensing the proximity of fresh meat, some of the creatures turned and scuttled towards them. Run! Rory shouted, spinning round and pushing Amy and Milton ahead of him. From behind, he heard spiny, segmented legs clattering in pursuit. The three of them ran back the way they'd come, Amy and Rory outpacing the shorter, chubbier schoolboy. Reaching the fire doors, they glanced back to see that Milton was about three metres behind them, the seething mass of creatures a similar distance behind him, but gaining rapidly. Faster! Amy shouted, urging him on. Milton glanced up, and then, to Amy's horror, he stumbled and fell. No! she screamed, lunging towards him, intending to run back and haul him to his feet. Rory grabbed her arm. It's too late! It was true. The creatures had already covered the short distance to Milton. Amy and Rory watched in horror, expecting to see them swarm over the boy and devour him. But to their amazement, the creatures completely ignored Milton, flowing around him as if he wasn't even there. Recovering from the surprise, Rory shoved open the fire door, bundled Amy through, and then quickly followed her before slamming it behind him. No sooner had he closed the doors than the creatures were slamming against them, jaws snapping, eyes bulging. The doors shook under their assault. Rory leant his weight against them, struggling to hold them closed. Find something to wedge it, he gasped. Already on it, Amy shouted, rummaging in a nearby maintenance cupboard. She grabbed a sturdy-looking mop. This should hold them for a while. She rammed the shaft of the mop through the handles, and Rory stepped back. The doors rattled and bulged, but held. We'd better warn people, she gasped. But what about Milton? Rory peered in anguish through the reinforced glass doors. He could see the schoolboy standing, pale and forlorn, as if he didn't know what to do. Amazingly, the creatures were still ignoring him. Well, those things aren't hurting him, so... Amy wrinkled her nose. Sorry, but there really isn't much we can do for him just now. She grabbed Rory's hand. Come on! Amy and Rory burst into the headmaster's study. How dare you! Kenyon began. No time for that, Rory panted, holding up his hands. The school's under attack. Under attack? Whatever do you mean? He listened in disbelief as they blurted out their story. When they'd finished, he pressed a hidden button, and a flap hinged open on his desk, exposing a small silver screen. He pressed another button, and a slim black keyboard rose from his desktop as a panel slid aside. OK, I know I'm not an expert on the fifties, but that strikes me as a bit anachronistic, said Rory, his deadpan tone belying his astonishment. Kenyon looked at him curiously, but made no comment. Instead, he tapped a couple of keys and the screen came to life, revealing interior views of the school. His eyes widened. Oh, my word, he muttered. He tapped at the keyboard again, and an inkwell on his desk tilted aside. Leaning forward, 
Kenyon pressed the button beneath it, and an alarm began to blare. Rising from his desk, he gestured towards the door. Shall we? he said. Three minutes after the alarm's activation, the school was empty, staff and pupils convening in neatly ordered groups on the east side of the playing fields. As Kenyon bustled about, organising a headcount, Amy and Rory moved from group to group, asking if anyone had seen the doctor, but were met only with shaking heads. Where's he got to? Amy snapped. We'll have to go and search for him. No need, said Rory, pointing back towards the school. Look. Two prefects were approaching, carrying a body between them. Doctor! Amy shouted, running across. Rory and the head prefect, Perkins, brought up the rear. The prefects laid the doctor on the grass. We found him in Cargo Bay 4, one of them said. Amy blinked. Cargo Bay what? Perkins looked at her sternly. It's an unauthorised zone. Well, so call the police, Amy snapped, vaguely wondering why a school should have a cargo bay. How is he? she asked as Rory knelt beside the doctor's prone body. Well, he's, he's breathing. Amy rolled her eyes. Thank you, nurse, for that expert assessment. He's a time lord, protested Rory, keeping his voice low. They don't teach us about them in med school. Amy dropped to her knees beside her husband and shook the doctor gently. Doctor, wake up. Nine sugars, please, matron, he mumbled, opening his eyes. Hello, Amy said. This is getting to be a habit. The doctor stared at her. Am I dead? Before she could reply, Perkins stepped forward. Would you explain what you were doing in an unauthorised zone? Not dead, then, said the doctor, sitting up. Well, that's a bonus. He pointed at Perkins. I was snooping, and with good cause. Did you know there's a time machine in your cargo bay? I'm suspecting not, but if you did, then I'm going to be very, very cross. Because when I say time machine, what I actually mean is time bomb. And when I say time bomb, I mean a bomb made out of time, which is the very worst kind of bomb you can get. Frankly, it's rubbish that you didn't pick up on it, because you're not prefects at all, but security droids with inbuilt detection doodars. And you're lucky that I'm here to deal with it for you, even though, at the moment, I have absolutely no idea how I'm going to do that. Oh, and one more thing. What are those? He pointed a long finger at the school building. They all turned to see a wave of red, scuttling spider creatures pouring out of the doors and windows and moving towards them. Incoming! Perkins shouted, pocketing his gun. Amy and Rory gaped as he rolled back his sleeve to reveal a control panel embedded in his left forearm. Establishing interim shields. His fingers flew over an array of keys, and then he frowned. Interim shields not responding. Blamire, Villiers, establish link with security grid. Two of Perkins' fellow prefects followed his lead, revealing identical control panels in their forearms. After a moment, one of them said, Security grid not responding. Kenyon hurried over. Behind him, the boys had now spotted the advancing spider creatures and were becoming agitated. What's the problem, Perkins? the headmaster snapped. Security grid unresponsive, sir, Perkins replied calmly. Initiate emergency evacuation procedures, then, Kenyon said. Establish a link with the matter transmission module. Have all personnel transferred to Security Satellite 5. Amy looked at Rory and raised her eyebrows. He shrugged in sympathy. He could see she was aching to ask questions, but, as so often with the doctor, 
There just wasn't time, and you simply had to go with the flow. Perkins' fingers again danced over the keyboard in his arm. All systems down, sir. Kenyon looked aghast. But that's impossible. It's very possible, the doctor replied. Glancing at the prefect, he said, Perkins, that Webley of yours, would I be right in assuming that it emits supercharged beams of concentrated ions? Yes, doctor, Perkins said. Lovely. In that case, when I give the word, I want you and your chums to fire at the creatures. What good will that do? Kenyon scoffed. There are hundreds of the things. We'll never be able to shoot all of them in time. Stop asking questions, said the doctor curtly. It's irritating. He glanced at the spider creatures, the first wave of which were now around eighty meters away, and then looked at the prefects, who'd quickly formed a line. Ready? They nodded. The doctor raised his sonic screwdriver. Now! The prefects fired their revolvers at the precise moment that the doctor gave a piercing blast on his sonic screwdriver. Everyone covered their ears as the energy beams converged and ignited in midair, expanding to form a wall of green flame. The creatures that reached it first were instantly repelled, their bodies consumed by green fire, blasted back as though struck by lightning. Well done, doctor! Kenyon cried. The doctor nodded curtly. It's effective, but only temporary. That firewall will burn itself out in a few minutes. We need somewhere safe to retreat to, somewhere we can defend easily. Our only viable option is to make for the pit, sir, Perkins suggested to a red faced and sweating Kenyon. The pit? Oh, I like the sound of that. Nice and homely, said the doctor. Kenyon gave him a sour look. The pit is a last resort, a containment facility for undesirables. We've never had cause to use it before because it was always assumed that nothing could breach our security grid. Never assume, said the doctor. My guess would be that your enemy, whoever he or she is, came in the time capsule I found in the cargo bay, bringing those creatures with them. Time travel? spluttered Kenyon. Yes, technology beyond your capabilities, which is why they were able to override your supposedly impregnable security grid. Effectively dismissing Kenyon by turning away from him, the doctor asked Perkins, Isn't this pit of yours going to be a bit cramped for. He rapidly scanned the ordered ranks of boys and staff. 364 people? The pit doubles as a protective environment in the event of a sustained attack, Perkins explained. Conditions are basic, but there are resources enough to enable the entire population of the school to survive underground for up to three months. Well, that's different then, said the doctor. So where is it? Perkins pointed to the woodland bordering the playing fields on his left. Seven hundred meters southwest. Well, let's get a move on then, said the doctor. But what about the force field? asked Amy. The doctor frowned. What force field? Behind the school, I found a force field, an invisible wall. Won't it stretch all the way around the grounds, stop us getting to this pit place? The doctor looked at Perkins, raising his eyebrows. Quickly, the prefect said, The force field does stretch around the grounds, but it is ovoid in shape, like an egg, with the school building at the apex. So it extends further out at the front than it does at the back, said Amy, frowning. Perkins nodded. Sorted, said the doctor. Turning, he waved his hands in the air. Come along, everyone, he shouted. Tally ho! Five minutes later, the boys and their teachers were streaming into the pit. Which was in a clearing screened by trees and accessed via a hidden hatch 
in the side of a grassy hill. The doctor stood beside Perkins, waving his arms. Room for plenty more inside. Don't be shy. Glancing back, Rory saw that the wall of flame had now dwindled to an occasional green flicker through the shifting screen of trees and tangled undergrowth. Fire's dying, he said. The doctor nodded. They'll be through in a minute. So what's with the android prefects and the high tech? asked Amy, finally taking the opportunity to ask some of the questions brimming in her head. It all seems a bit out of place in a 1950s public school. That's because it's not a 1950s public school, the doctor said. It's a replica of one. So it's not even a real school, said Rory. Oh, it's that all right. But this is the 28th century, not the 20th. And this isn't Earth. It's a heavily guarded space satellite. I've heard of these academies. They were set up to supply a back to basics education for privileged children in the hope of producing tough, capable individuals equipped to follow in their parents' high achieving footsteps. The pupils here are the heirs of millionaires, captains of industry, politicians, world leaders. Pupils? You mean boys? Amy grunted. There's an academy for girls on another satellite, the doctor said quietly. It's bigger than this one. Oh, said Amy. Well, that's all right then. Behind them, one of the prefects suddenly yelled, Incoming! They turned to find that the wall of fire had now died, leaving nothing but a pall of smoke smudging the sky like dirty fingerprints. They heard rustling in the foliage and saw the rapidly approaching twitching of shrubs and bushes as the wave of spider creatures swept closer. Most of the boys and their teachers were in the pit now, only a few stragglers bringing up the rear. That rule about not running in corridors, the doctor said, shooing them along. Ignore it. The first few creatures emerged into the clearing as the last of the boys entered the pit. As if acclimatizing to the new terrain, they paused, glaring with fish-like eyes at the small group of prefects and the time travelers. Thick, yellowish drool dripped from their curved and jagged teeth as they opened their mouths to hiss hungrily. And then, in a wave of clattering legs and the sandpaper scrape of spiny, hard-shelled bodies, they rushed forward. As the air sizzled with the high-pitched zap of supercharged iron beams from the prefect's guns, the doctor pushed Rory and Amy into the pit. Several of the creatures exploded into fragments, but it was clear the prefects would be overrun in seconds if they remained where they were. The doctor grabbed Perkins' arm. Time to retreat gracefully. Perkins zapped another of the creatures, which exploded with a screeching howl. Our prime directive is to protect the population of this campus, Doctor, he said. Which you'll do more effectively by keeping all your droidy doings in full working order, the Doctor replied. Perkins considered for a split second, then nodded. Fall back, he yelled. I do like a machine you can reason with, said the Doctor. Fighting a rearguard action, the prefects back towards the hatch, efficiently picking off advancing creatures as they did so. As the last of them entered the pit, and the doctor slapped the button to close the entrance hatch, one of the creatures let loose a blood-curdling screech and launched itself at the narrowing gap. It made it, just. Its leggy, armored body sailed through the hatch and hit the metal floor of the corridor hard. Its spiny legs thrashed as it scrabbled for purchase and then it turned and leapt at the doctor. Instinctively, the doctor arched his back like a limbo dancer, his bony elbows almost scraping the floor. 
the spider creature sailed over his head, one of its trailing limbs drawing a stripe of blood from the doctor's cheek. It landed upside down in a tangle of limbs, but instantly flipped itself over. Amy, who had hurried back to see if the doctor was okay, now pulled up short, eyes widening. Doctor! She screamed as the thing leapt towards her, its open mouth displaying serrated, shark-like teeth. There was a flash of something small and dark, which connected squarely with its head, and then the creature dropped lifeless to the floor, landing at Amy's feet in a rattling heap. For a moment, all was silent, apart from the background hum of the life support system. Then Amy expelled a shuddering breath and picked up the object which had felled the creature. That was... impressive, gasped Rory, who had appeared behind Amy. What a shot! Shrugging modestly, the doctor plucked the cricket ball from Amy's hand and dropped it back into his pocket. Once took five wickets for New South Wales, he said. I used to bowl a wicked googly. Amy laughed shakily, looking at the creature. Is it dead? Nah, said the doctor. But it'll have a stonking headache when it wakes up, which might make it a bit grumpy. He nudged it with his toe and turned to Perkins. Don't suppose you've got a Tupperware box, have you? Rory bumped his head for the fifth time. Ow! Again, he muttered. Amy poked him in the back. Stop moaning. At least you haven't had to spend the time staring at your big bum. No, I've spent it staring at the doctors, Rory said, which is infinitely worse. Oi! protested the doctor, turning with difficulty due to the large plastic specimen box containing the spider creature, which he was cradling in his arms. Led by Perkins and another prefect called Villiers, the time travellers were bent almost double as they shuffled along one of several tunnels which linked the pit to the main school building. The tunnels had been designed as either access or escape routes if the pit's main entrance could not be reached. In truth, however, the Academy's external security measures, the force fields surrounding the campus, the heavily armed patrol ships orbiting the Academy satellite, were so extensive that the widely held belief had been that the pit was an indulgence, and the additional escape routes, therefore, superfluous. For this reason, the tunnels were narrow, low-ceilinged, dimly lit, and insufferably hot. As well as frequently bumping his head on the roof supports, Rory found that he was constantly having to wipe sweat from his face. The doctor hadn't been keen on Amy and Rory accompanying him, but Rory had insisted. He felt guilty at abandoning Milton earlier, and was hoping for a chance to make amends. His account of how he had saved Milton from the other boys, and of how the spider creatures had left him alone, seemed to pique the doctor's interest. Though if the doctor had a theory which might explain Milton's immunity from attack, he was keeping it to himself. He had stressed that their main priority was simply to disable the time machine before its instability could result in what he had called time collapse. And to do this, they needed to get to the TARDIS. The tunnel ended in a rounded wall and a semicircular hole in the ceiling, the entrance to a metal chute up which they had to climb to reach the school above. There were rungs set into the side of the chute to use as hand and footholds. At the top were a narrow platform and a featureless wooden door with a control panel instead of a handle. Perkins, who reached the platform first, tapped in a number code, and the door swung open. One by one they climbed up onto the platform, behind Perkins, and stepped through the door.
Rory and Amy blinked as they found themselves in the brightness of the headmaster's study. The wooden door was one of the bookcases lining the wall opposite the desk, which had swung open on a concealed hinge. When they were all through, Perkins raised a hand. Just because it's quiet doesn't mean we're alone, he said. I suggest we proceed with caution. I never proceed with anything but, said the doctor, unless it's a plum. Although he had been weighed down by the specimen box, the doctor looked infinitely sprightlier than his companions. Now, however, he thrust the box at Rory. Carry this, would you? Rory automatically took the box, but looked indignant. Why me? Because you're a big, strong boy, and I'll need my hands free to do clever stuff, the doctor said. Not exactly light, is it? grunted Rory, adjusting the weight of the box so he could carry it more comfortably. Why are we bringing this with us anyway? I have my reasons, replied the doctor vaguely. Sighing, Rory looked at Amy. Don't you just hate it when he goes all mysterious? Oh, yeah, she agreed. Perkins eased open the door to the corridor and peered out to check that the coast was clear. I'll go first and Villiers will bring up the rear, he whispered. Stay tight and keep communication to a minimum. They nodded and moved into the corridor, the doctor flipping open his sonic screwdriver in readiness. The school seemed to be holding its breath, dust motes curled lazily through shafts of sunlight, in between which shadows stretched across the floor. Despite their efforts, the wooden boards creaked beneath their weight, as they progressed slowly along the corridor, through the doors at the end, and down the stairs. Rory caught Amy's eye, and raised his eyebrows reassuringly, though his face was tense. They made it down two flights of stairs and into the impressive entrance hall without incident. Cautiously, they crossed the tiled floor towards the massive double doors, above which, rendered in metal, was the familiar black star symbol of the school crest. Raising a hand to indicate that they should stand back, Perkins pressed his ear to the door and listened. Apparently satisfied, he reached out with his left hand, the one that wasn't holding his Webley, and eased the right-hand door open. A shaft of sunlight spilled through the widening gap, stretching across the floor. Beyond it, Amy could see the brilliant green of the front lawn and the startling blue of the sky, with the line of trees sandwiched in between. There was no sign of the spider creatures, which hopefully meant they were still milling around the entrance to the pit. With any luck, their route back to the stables, and the TARDIS, would be unimpeded. When the gap was wide enough, they slipped outside and began to descend the stone steps to the gravel forecourt. Perkins first, then the Doctor, then Rory and Amy, and finally Villiers. The first sign Amy had that anything was wrong was when she heard a clattering thump behind her. She turned, and her mouth dropped open. Doctor! she yelled. Hundreds of spider creatures were clinging to the front of the building, smothering the stonework in a seething red mass. What Amy had heard was one of them dropping onto Villiers' shoulders. The creature was now frenziedly attacking the prefect, its legs wrapped around his body, its piranha-like jaws tearing at his back. Villiers staggered beneath its weight, trying to free his arms so he could blast it with his webley. Amy saw the creature rip through Villiers' blazer and bite into his artificial flesh, whereupon there was a loud bang and a shower of white sparks. 
In the next moment, the android's body and that of the creature were encased in a skittering blue-white web of electrical energy caused by the short-circuiting of Villiers' damaged systems. There were more explosions, and Villiers began to spasm and jerk, black smoke pouring from his mouth and his blazer collar. Amy screamed and covered her head as the prefect exploded with a final almighty bang, bits of him flying everywhere. The blackened, shriveled body of the spider creature dropped to the ground, long, jointed legs curling inwards. Run! yelled the doctor as more of the creatures dropped onto the steps and scuttled towards them. Amy and Rory, who were still struggling with the size and weight of the box, ran past Perkins, who had turned to fire his Webley into the advancing horde. The doctor skidded to a halt beside him and switched on his sonic screwdriver. Once again, the ion discharge from Perkins' gun ignited, producing a sheet of green flame which engulfed the creatures. This time, however, they were too close, and many of the creatures made it through the barrier, several with flames flickering on their spiny-shelled backs. The doctor grabbed Perkins' arm. Come on, we can't stop them all! Perkins shook himself free. You go, doctor. I'll hold them off for as long as possible. The doctor scowled. No, I won't let you sacrifice yourself. My prime directive is to protect the population of this campus, Perkins said calmly. Internal calculations indicate that the best chance of fulfilling that is to make every effort to preserve your life. The doctor gave Perkins an anguished look, but knew there was no time to argue. Thank you, he said, patting the prefect's shoulder awkwardly. Then he ran. The doctor caught up with his companions at the entrance to the stables. Where's Perkins? Amy asked. Proving his loyalty to the school, the doctor said grimly, sweeping past her. Amy and Rory followed him inside. They found him standing very still, only a few steps into the building's gloomy interior. What? Amy began, but the doctor's hand snapped up, one long finger pointing at the ceiling. Shh! Amy looked up and swallowed a gasp. The rafters above them were alive with spider creatures, the occasional stealthy scrape of their chitinous bodies echoing eerily as they moved. I think they're asleep, the doctor whispered, and pointed at the entrance to the stall where they'd left the TARDIS. I'm going to risk it. Don't be crazy, Amy hissed. You'll never make it. From outside came a distant but approaching clatter. I don't think I've got much choice, the doctor muttered. He began to move towards the stool, taking long, loping strides, arms held out on either side of him. Amy gave Rory a despairing look and they began to follow, moving slowly and carefully. They were halfway there when the creature inside the box Rory was carrying shifted sluggishly. Caught by surprise, he stumbled, his foot crunching on a pile of dry hay. The time-travellers froze. For a second all seemed well, and then the spider-creatures above them began to stir, their legs unfurling, their bodies scraping together. Oops, Rory said. Next moment, with a series of clattering thumps, spider-creatures began to drop from the ceiling, landing all around them and blocking their path to the TARDIS. OK, said the doctor thoughtfully. Not a great situation, and I've only got one cricket ball. The three of them huddled together as the creatures closed in. Doctor, do something, said Amy. I'm thinking, 
he replied. Well, think quicker, she told him. Just as the creatures were crouching in readiness to spring, the stable doors crashed open and a boy rushed in, waving his arms. Back! he shouted. Back! Incredibly, the creatures obeyed. They moved back, creating a channel as the boy walked forward. Milton! exclaimed Rory. You're okay! You came back, said Milton, frowning. Why did you come back? To find you, among other things, said the doctor. And then he leant forward, his voice softening. Not everyone's out to get you, Milton. Some of us just want to help. Abruptly he stepped back, twirling his fingers in the air to indicate the creatures around them. I'm the doctor, by the way. Nice little menagerie you've got here. How do you make them obey you? Milton shrugged uncertainly. I don't know. They just do. The doctor stared at the boy intently for a moment before grinning. Well, never mind that. Would you like to see inside a time machine? Milton scowled. Time travel is impossible. Is it? said the doctor. Blimey! It isn't, you know, said Rory, nodding towards the TARDIS. You won't believe what's in there. Milton's face tightened, as if he sensed some kind of deception. There's nothing in there, he said. It's just an old box. Nervously eyeing the spider creatures, Amy hunkered down. Softly, she said, No tricks. Honest. Trust me, Milton. I know what it's like to feel different, to be treated like a weirdo. She held out a hand and smiled. So come and see. Milton stared into her eyes, hesitating for a second longer. Then he reached out and took her hand. Amy kept hold of Milton's hand as he came to terms with the interior of the TARDIS. He looked around, goggle-eyed, at first with fear and disbelief, and then with a dawning sense of wonder. The doctor, meanwhile, became a whirlwind of activity. As soon as he stepped through the door, he raced up the steps and around the console, turning dials, pulling levers and slapping buttons with seeming abandon. Leaping back down the steps, he disappeared through a door at the back of the console room, only to reappear seconds later with his bow tie askew and leaves in his hair. He strode across the floor, bearing a large glass aquarium in his arms. Attached to the sides of the aquarium were half a dozen floppy red tubes, which trailed along the ground like the tentacles of a dead octopus. Ignoring Rory's protests, the doctor swept the chessboard off the folding table, scattering pieces everywhere, and plonked the aquarium in its place. Then he opened a panel at the base of the TARDIS console and dragged out a tangled mass of thick cables. Examining them rapidly, he discarded many before finding half a dozen he was happy with. These he attached to the tubes dangling from the aquarium, shouting, Bingo! as they clicked into place. What's he doing? Milton whispered to Amy. Showing off, mostly, Amy whispered back. Gimme, said the doctor rudely, grabbing the plastic specimen box from Rory. Peeling off the lid, he upended it over the aquarium, tipping the now-reviving spider creature inside. He fixed a metal lid to the aquarium and then hurried back over to Amy and Milton, rooting in his pocket. Sorry about this he said, grabbing Milton's free hand and jabbing something sharp into the pad of his index finger, making him yelp. When a bead of blood rose from the wound, 
the doctor produced a glass slide from his pocket and smeared the blood across it. As Milton sucked his finger, the doctor rushed back across the floor, ascended the steps to the console and inserted the slide into a slot beside the viewing screen. Tweaking controls, he peered intently at the screen, his eyebrows rising so high that they disappeared beneath the curl of his overhanging fringe. Crikey, he said. What is it? asked Amy. The doctor pointed at Milton. You're normal. Milton frowned, unsure whether he'd been insulted. But that thing, the doctor continued, pointing at the spider creature, which was now scrabbling about bad-temperedly in its glass prison, isn't. It's an artificial life form, with only two things embedded in its silly little brain. Number one is an instruction. Eat people, people tasty, yum yum. And number two is this. He ripped a tongue of paper that had curled out from a slot in the console and held it up. Uh, what is it? asked Rory, who could see nothing but numbers and symbols. It's Milton's DNA profile. Those things have orders to kill absolutely everyone but him. But why? asked Amy. I don't get it. I do, said Milton, scowling. It's my father. Your father? Rory said. He's a bad man. He's got lots of enemies. The sons of some of them come to this school. The doctor tapped a couple of buttons and peered at the information scrolling up the viewer screen. Conrad Hope Ballantyne, he said. Multimedia tycoon, market leader in communication technology, off-world construction, interstellar transport, blah, blah, blah. Personal fortune estimated at... <gasps> he whistled. That's a lot of noughts. So you think your dad sent those things to wipe out the future opposition, said Rory. That doesn't explain the wonky time machine in the cargo bay, though, Amy said. Hold tight, the doctor shouted suddenly. We're going in. The journey was brief, but rough. The four of them clung to whatever they could as the TARDIS was buffeted by what the doctor yelled were fluctuating waves of Artron energy. At one point, Rory dived across the console room to stop the aquarium from crashing to the floor. Eventually, the TARDIS steadied, the trumpeting of its ancient engines filling the air as it materialized. Stay here, the doctor said, jumping down from the console, and this time, I mean it. Where are we? asked Amy, picking herself up. Inside the other time machine, the doctor replied. Then he went outside, slamming the door behind him. The control room he entered was stark and white. The walls scorched, warped, half-melted, as if subjected to tremendous external pressures. The console was like a more basic version of his own, six-sided but rudimentary. The time rotor a thin tube rising from the centre, feeding a mass of smaller pipes, which snaked in all directions across the domed ceiling and down the walls. The impression was of a heart supplying a parent body with blood, except that in this case the heart was ailing. The console had clearly been patched up many times, and even the column of the time rotor was crazed with cracks. The doctor crossed to it, shaking his head. You poor old thing, he murmured. 
Hands up, doctor, said a croaking voice behind him. The doctor slowly turned to be confronted by a shambling wreck of a man emerging from behind the TARDIS. In the man's gnarled, claw-like hand was a small tubular device. Like the walls of his ship, the man's face was warped, half-melted, pulled out of shape by artron leakage. His appearance was horrifying, but the doctor regarded him with pity. Look what's become of you, he said softly. The man's face twisted in surprise. You know who I am? The doctor nodded. You're Milton Hope Ballantyne. You're the man that the boy in there has become. I even know why you're here, to take revenge on those who bullied you. He shook his head and his voice took on a bitter edge. Such a stupid waste. Revenge is never an acceptable motive for anything. Hope Ballantyne curled his lip. You don't know how much they taunted me, Doctor, how I suffered. They hated me because I was clever, because I was a genius. I spent years developing the creatures as a way of getting back at my tormentors. And you even genetically imprinted them with the school symbol to reflect the fact that you were turning your hatred of the place onto the bullies, said the Doctor scornfully. Did that never strike you as a bit, well, bonkers? I'm not mad, Doctor, retorted Hope Ballantyne. A mad person would never have had the focus, the expertise to achieve what I've achieved. I built a time machine inspired by memories of your TARDIS. So what do you want? Applause? snapped the Doctor. You had a brilliant mind, Milton, and you've thrown it away in pursuit of a petty childhood vendetta. Not petty, Doctor. Hope Ballantyne said. Those boys pushed me beyond endurance. Oh, boo-hoo, yelled the doctor, suddenly furious. We all have skeletons in our closets, Milton, but most of us put them behind us and move on. Oh, not you, though. Oh, no. Don't you realise that by simply not letting go of your bitterness, you could end everything? Hope Ballantyne sneered. You think I care? You should care, said the doctor because when this old crate blows, you'll cease to exist like the rest of us. Hope Ballantyne shook his head. Not when you've been kind enough to deliver the means of my salvation. I'll use your TARDIS to travel back in time, far enough back so that the future, this future, won't matter. Not how it works, I'm afraid, said the doctor grimly. If this machine isn't shut down, it'll result in time collapse. Present, future, past. They'll all be wiped out. Hope Ballantyne laughed. Impossible! It's not impossible, said the doctor. Listen to me. I've heard enough, said Hope Ballantyne, his voice hardened. Now, back into your TARDIS! Amy's relief at seeing the doctor re-enter the console room was short-lived. Hiding her revulsion at the sight of the disfigured Hope Ballantyne, she said... Who are you? Just do what he says and we'll be fine, said the doctor, before Hope Ballantyne could answer. Hope Ballantyne gurgled a laugh. Whatever gave you that idea? He pointed his weapon at Amy's head. I don't like loose ends, especially potentially dangerous ones. Rory jumped in front of Amy, and then the doctor stepped rapidly in front of them both. Kill my friends, and you might as well kill me too and you need me to fly the TARDIS. You do have a high opinion of yourself, don't you? Hope Ballantyne said, 
aiming the gun squarely at the doctor's chest. I think you're forgetting how clever I am, which makes everyone else, including you, doctor, dispensable. Suddenly, a small figure leapt between the doctor and Hope Ballantyne's gun, arms spread wide. Don't you shoot my friends, Milton shouted. Hope Ballantyne hesitated, momentarily taken aback. Out of my way, boy. I won't, Milton snapped. I know who you work for. If you shoot me, my dad will be really cross. The doctor grinned. Mexican standoff, eh? If you fire at us and accidentally hit Milton, what'll happen to you, do you think? Hope Ballantyne looked momentarily at a loss. Then he spotted the aquarium containing the now furiously scrabbling spider creature. With a lopsided leer, he said, I don't need to shoot you. You very kindly provided me with a far more selective weapon. He aimed his gun at the aquarium. No! shouted the doctor, throwing up his hands in horror. Don't! You're making a... Before he could complete his sentence, Hope Ballantyne fired. A thin beam of energy struck the aquarium, which vaporized, releasing the creature. For a moment, the creature stood there, quivering as if stunned and then it leapt off the table and started scuttling across the floor towards Milton and the time travellers. Hope Ballantyne cackled, and the creature paused, then abruptly changed direction, distracted by the noise. What are you doing, you stupid creature? Hope Ballantyne snapped. Don't you recognise your master? With a hideous screech, the creature launched itself at Hope Ballantyne, its legs coiling around him, its teeth fastening on his throat. Hope Ballantyne fell with a choking scream, the creature on top of him. He dropped his weapon, which slithered across the floor. The doctor looked aghast. I extracted the DNA code from its brain, he shouted. I, I tried to tell him, but he wouldn't listen. What? said Amy. The doctor glanced at Milton, who was watching the attack with horror. Never mind, cover his eyes. As Amy did so, Rory ran across and snatched up the gun. However, it was too late to save Hope Ballantyne. With a final squawking gasp, his body slumped, the life going out of his eyes. Having dispatched its erstwhile master, the creature now turned and hissed at Rory. Just as it sprang through the air, Rory fired, the thin white beam hitting the creature full on. It sizzled and writhed, then crashed to the floor, smoke rising from its shriveled, lifeless body. The doctor ran across the console room and through the door, clapping Rory on the shoulder as he passed. When he reappeared a minute later, all was quiet. Rory had covered Hope Ballantyne's dead face with his jacket, and the spider creature was nothing but black ash. Where did you go? Amy asked. Into the capsule, replied the doctor. The creatures were artificial life forms. I was able to deactivate them from there. Shut down the time machine, too. He ran long fingers through his hair and heaved a huge sigh. It's over. The materialization of the TARDIS in the pit caused something of a sensation. The doctor stepped out to find four guns trained on him. This time, however, he grinned at the prefects brandishing them. Down, boys he said. He walked into the middle of the cavernous room and clapped his hands. All right, listen up, everyone. 
The creatures are dead, and I've shut down the time machine, so everything's tickety boo again. But, he raised a finger dramatically. I couldn't have done it without the help of one particular person. He spun towards the TARDIS, arm outstretched, to reveal Milton being pushed out of the door by Amy. Milton Hope Ballantyne saved all our lives, the doctor announced. All your lives too. He was brave, clever, and most of all, he paused dramatically, looking round at his wide-eyed audience. He was very. Very cool. Later, back inside the TARDIS, Amy asked, "Will it make a difference?" "Hmm," said the Doctor distractedly. He was banging the keys of the typewriter, which was incorporated into the console. "What you said about Milton? Will it turn him from zero to hero? Make him into a different person?" The Doctor stared thoughtfully into the distance. As if he could see the future unrolling before his eyes. Finally, he murmured, "Who knows? I hope so." He looked at Amy, and a sad smile flickered on his lips. Only time will tell. Doctor Who: Dark Star Academy was written by Mark Morris and read by Alexander Armstrong. <laughs>